Hey there, and welcome back to the Clarity Podcast. This podcast is all about providing clarity and insight and life and mission. And my name is Aaron Sandemeyer, and I'm going to be your host. Today, we have the phenomenal opportunity to sit down with Dr. Jim Seymour, and we continue our discussion and focus on, on team and missiology. Those are growth areas and growth capacities within the Africa House, as we're going to sit down and talk about, um, you know, our, the idea of cross-cultural ministry and interracial um, reconciliation and what that looks like. We've shared um, on this podcast, we've realized um, the, the tensions that have come to surface and we've realized in, in the United States and, and around the world that we've desired, at least for our teams in, in Africa, for those to be very diverse and to, to get different perspectives, but also realizing that we've come that in that with almost homo- homogenous approach, meaning that we all came from America, we all are um, going to think alike. And what we've realized is, is, is there's some differences there. And uh, the only way to address those is one, to bring them into light, and two, is then to sit and learn and listen. And so we'll sit down with Dr. Jim Seymour today, and he'll discuss um, his ministry. He's been a missionary in Alaska and then Rhodesia that became Zimbabwe. And then um, he was a pastor in Raleigh, North Carolina. He was a professor, um, continues to be an adjunct professor at a historically backed university called St. Augustine's in Raleigh, North Carolina. And so he's going to share his wisdom and his insight, his experience, the things, lessons he's learned over time, things that work and do not work. He'll unpack the idea that we can empathize and sympathize, but we can't identify um, with our our African-American and black brothers and sisters that um, we can empathize, we can sympathize, but to identify we can't we can't do that and so in the process of just learning and growing and understanding and how we can grow together and be stronger together in this process and and embracing our diversity not trying to minimize it but embracing he'll talk about the first black missionaries he wrote a book called black history through blue eyes um, phenomenal title and a very interesting book um, he, it's a biblical approach as he goes through the Bible and then talks about you know from Azusa Street and what that looks like in the the hope of Pentecost um, um, for um, reconciliation and for uh, there not to be division and um, and he'll unpack that for us and it's a challenging interview. Um, he'll he'll make he'll stretch your brain and stretch your mind a little bit and uh, very very insightful and just really appreciated him his time on the podcast. Just want to mention also, um, you know, we continue to do the back channel with both and um, some people have asked questions about that. Basically, what happens is people send in questions and we answer a question or two before um, one episode a week and um, and then we jump into the interview. So if you listen in and you hear it, they say back channel, I say back channel with both, the, the interview will follow that. And so you can send in questions on the growth capacities, the nine growth capacities that are found in the show notes. My email address is there. And um, we, people seem to be really listeners enjoying asking Dick questions, his insight, his wisdom is valued. And we, we appreciate him being a part part of this podcast. Do want to thank our sponsor for this episode today, which is Appalachian Spring Dermatology, bringing new life to your skin. Learn more about the medical, cosmetic, and skin cancer screenings and treatments at Appalachian Spring Dermatology. And sign up for Dr. Rosenberger's blog at wvderm.com. Well, there's no time better than now to get started. So here we go. Well, greetings and welcome back to the Clarity Podcast. It's uh, an honor to sit down today with my our guest, uh, Dr. Jim Seymour, who happens to be also my father-in-law, but looking forward to sitting down and learning from him today. Um, 
he's someone I greatly respect that when uh, Heather and I first uh, met and I remember coming um, to Raleigh, North Carolina, um, we began to talk about the subject we're going to talk about today. And this is something, an area of, of racial reconciliation and seeing um, unity in the church and in our, in our communities is something that Jim has been passionate about for a very long time and has spent a lot of his time in ministry working in that area. Dr. Jim, would you go ahead and inter, introduce yourself to the audience for those who probably don't know you as well as I do? Yeah, um, I'm from uh, Bridgeport, Connecticut initially, uh, up in the Northeast. Uh, I grew up in a Roman Catholic family. After my first year in university at Central Connecticut University, where I played on the football team, uh, that summer I was home with uh, family and friends, and uh, my uh, high school classmates were going to meet for a beach party at Seaside Park on Long Island Sound. My best friend and I headed to that uh, beach party that night. We were going to smoke grass and drink wine and have a fun time with uh, the guys and the girls, but we got there early. And we stopped at a tent that the city of Bridgeport set up every year for entertainment. Guys like Flip Wilson, uh, rock bands would come, etc. But for a week, apparently, there was some kind of a religious going on. And I had no idea when we stumbled into the tent to kill a little time. We found out it was uh, Billy Graham's brother-in-law, Leighton Ford, uh, who was there for a week of a, what they called a one-way crusade. And uh, so we sat in the back, there was a few thousand people in there, and uh, we just thought we would listen and then move on. But we were intrigued uh, by the music, uh, singing all about Jesus. And then Leighton Ford got up and preached about Jesus Christ as if he knew him. And uh, I'd had one year in university, I figured I probably knew everything I needed to know about life and knowledge, but I'd never heard this before, mm. or at least I never paid attention. And he explained who Jesus was, that Jesus was real. He was alive. Uh, he, he lived on this earth. He died on the cross for our sins. And he's coming back again. I was astounded. We were both on the edge of our seat. This hmm. Italian Catholic fella, and I'm an Irish Catholic fella, and we just never paid attention. If this was shared, we didn't hear it. At the end of that service, uh, he has a choir sing a song we'd never heard at uh, St. Charles Church, just as I am without one plea, but that your blood was shed for me, O Lamb of God, I come. I, I was astounded. And he said, if you want to invite Jesus into your life, you come forward, we'll pray for you, and you can meet Jesus. Meet Jesus. I, I've never heard any of this kind of rhetoric before. I'm astounded. And I say to my friend, you don't want to go down there, do you? he said, oh, no, do you? And uh, so we both slipped out of the back of the tent, but we never went to the party. We drove around town in his Mustang and talked about it. And this was the time when a rock opera called Jesus Christ Superstar was just hitting the airwaves. So we played some of that on the radio and talked about Jesus as if we'd only heard about him for the first time. The next day, I worked at a grocery store for my summer job unloading watermelon trucks in the produce department. He went to his job in a factory. But in the end of the day, I called him. I said, hey, listen, I'd like to go back and hear that again. What do you say? He said, I want to too. So we both <laughs> are intrigued enough to go back and listen one more time about who Jesus is. And again, Leighton Ford preaches, only his sermon that night is entitled, Jesus Christ, Superstar or Son of God? He said he was a superstar, the greatest superstar ever, 
but he is the son of God. Well, at the end of that message, he again gives an invitation. If you want to give your heart to Jesus, if you want to be forgiven of your sins, come forward, we'll pray for you. And in a moment, I had a thought. It just passed through my mind quickly, like a comet. And the thought was this. If I go forward and pray with these people, somehow my life will never be the same. If I leave tonight, I'm never going to think of this stuff again. And while I was thinking about it, my friend, who in high school was the center when I was the quarterback, Ray Monroe, started walking forward like he was blocking for me, and I followed him. Hmm. And we both went forward and gave our lives to Jesus Christ. Now, that was 49 years ago, June hmm. 21st, 1971. Now, you might ask, whatever happened to Ray Monroe? He became an Assembly of God missionary. Uh, in Durban, South Africa, the principal of the Bible College in Swaziland. Uh, so we both went on to serve the Lord, got baptized in the Holy Spirit a couple of months later, uh, and began and became involved in missions. And, and just more recently, he's been on the faculty of North Point Bible College in Haverville, Massachusetts. So two of the most unlikely characters uh, to become... Uh, Christians, and then fill with the Spirit, and then go into the uh, missions, uh, world missions, um, that was us. And to yeah. this day, 49 years later, we still serve Jesus. But we grew up in Bridgeport, a very multiracial community. Uh, we played on a football team, with, which was a very multiracial uh, setting. Uh, in the backfield, I was the quarterback, and uh, the other two running backs and the and the wing back, they were all African-Americans, and we, were, we all got along just fine. So I grew up in the context of being sensitive to some degree to racial realities back in those days of the civil rights movement, of course, which was raging in the United States, and my teammates and friends, many of whom were black. Wow. Wow. Oh, go ahead. Jim, you, you spent um, the majority of your life, if you just shared in cross-cultural work and in interracial service, and you've been deeply committed to, to racial healing in the church and in your ministry and also in, in broader society. And also, I think the other part of that, you know, for listeners to know, this is deeply personal for you also, and you have a passion because three of your grandchildren are also African-American. So this is not just some uh, theoretical thing or, you know, just a, an idea, but this is deeply personal for you. Can you share a few lessons that you've learned um, along the way? You were, you know, a professor at a, a historically back black uh, university. Um, just some lessons you've learned, two or three lessons yeah. that might be valuable for the listeners. Yes. Um, in 1976, uh, my wife Dawn and I became missionaries with the Assemblies of God in Bethel, Alaska. We spent several years there before going to the country of Rhodesia in 1980. And three months after we arrived, it became Zimbabwe and spent 12 years as a missionary in Zimbabwe. And one of the things that I learned, that was a transitional time for world missions from something of a colonial model even among missionaries. I mean, people do what people see, and missionaries had seen that model, and so they practiced that. But I think I was of a different generation, and uh, building relationships with my African students. I was the principal of a Bible college for many years, and had some outstanding students, 
uh, who, who went on to become uh, leaders of several denominations and churches of thousands. And, uh, but I found that treating people with respect and with equality, my, some of the closest friends I have in the world to this very moment are former students and African pastors from Zimbabwe, and now some are in Zambia and uh, in the Democratic Republic of Congo, Southern Sudan, because I taught for uh, several times short-term courses uh, at Pan-African Christian University in Nairobi, Kenya, and then I had students from many nations, and I've continued to be involved in ministry with them. I was supposed to be in the Congo in June, but they've shut down the flights and so I couldn't go and I have to reschedule for 2021. But one of the things I've learned, a principle that I've learned, is the principle of respect. People have to feel like they are being valued, that their opinions matter, and that they are being heard. If I, as a missionary, take the posture that just because I'm from the West or just because I'm from America, I know better than you, it's very demeaning. And there was a generation that would not say anything and just accept that that is not today. You're right that uh, after leaving uh, Africa and missions after 16 years between Alaska and Africa, I became a professor at St. Augustine's University in Raleigh, North Carolina. It's a historically black university founded in 1867 by the Protestant Episcopal Church to train former slaves as missionaries as pastors and as educators. And uh, I became the chair of the philosophy and religion department for many years. And to this day, I'm still an adjunct, although I'm pastoring a church now and I have other ministries. I still do international ministry several times a year, but uh, I'm still an adjunct at St. Augustine's because I've loved my experience there and my classmates. But I had a student once from Tanzania and this student uh, made a statement once. He was a very fine fellow. He was kind of from rural Tanzania, made his way to the United States. He had a brother who was on the faculty in the business division. And, uh, and this young man, uh, his name was Samuel, uh, said to me one time, because we became very close friends, he knew my love for Africa and the people of Africa. And he said to me, because of my accent, these students think I'm stupid but I want to know, can any of them kill a goat? <laughs> and, and I thought, you know, he had a great point because none of our students from the inner city of Washington, D.C., Brooklyn, New York, Miami, Florida, Raleigh, Durham, North Carolina, um, they couldn't kill a goat. Uh, and so he, in the context of where he came from, he was very competent, but his language and some of the, the customs that he was used to in rural Africa, although he was very intelligent, got wonderful grades, they still didn't take him very serious, but he said, could they kill a goat? Well, I think that's African wisdom. Uh, I think intelligence doesn't have to be um, associated with your English pronunciation. And I don't think it has to do with your cultural heritage and definitely not the color of your skin. Now, in the African-American community, I also found uh, working uh, and continuing to work at St. Augustine's uh, University, I've done several seminars over the years at, uh, at conferences. And I did one several years ago uh, on the education of African-American males. And I entitled my uh, presentation, A Blue-Eyed Perspective on Educating Black Males. And the, the concept that I talked about was three R's, respect, rapport, 
and then relationship. In the African-American community, particularly, respect is everything. If a young man or a young woman feels disrespected, uh, things can uh, disintegrate into conflict and sometimes even violence, uh, whether it be in their community or on a college campus, you have to treat people with respect. And I think I would say to my African-American brothers and sisters, I mean, to my American brothers and sisters who are of the Caucasian race, understand uh, that there is historical realities that our African-American brothers, beginning in 1619, when uh, they first arrived on the shores of the United States, through 240 years of slavery, 100 years of Jim Crow segregation, the KKK hanging at least 4,000 African-American men and women. That's not my reality, but that's their reality. Recently, I uh, shared something, I do something every week called a question to ponder. And, and I talked about this issue of race because right now it's a very sensitive issue in America. And speaking to my white brothers and sisters, I said, we can sympathize with the issues like the death of a fellow by the name of George Floyd recently, who was tragically killed uh, brutally by a, a white police officer. And that has triggered uh, chaos and protest in our nation. And we can sympathize. Everybody who saw that felt sympathy. We can also empathize because if you have a son who you love and you picture them, you may have tears in your eyes as you watch that young man die and his mother and his family cry over that. So you can sympathize and you can empathize. What you cannot do is identify. I will never know, even though I've lived in Africa for years, I go to Africa every year. Some of my closest friends are from Africa, but I cannot sit here and say, I know what it is to be an African man. I don't know what it is to be an African man. I know what it is to be an American man. That's what I know. That's my, I can identify with a missionary. I've been a missionary. I know what loneliness is. I know what it is to cope with climate, with political crisis. I was in Zimbabwe at independence when they said, if Robert Mugabe becomes president, you will be killed in your beds. That's what other missionaries said. Well, we went anyway, because we knew God called us there. And when we arrived in Zimbabwe, my wife was seven months pregnant with a baby girl yet to be born. Her name is Heather Santmeyer, and we're fine. God protected us. He protects you where he calls you. And I told people in those days, I was not afraid to go because I knew the only dangerous place in the whole world was outside the will of God. And mm. God called me to go to Rhodesia in a time of war, even though 35 missionaries had died during the previous seven years of conflict. I knew that's where I was supposed to be. And if I'm going to die, which I will, let me die in the will of God. So when it comes to these issues, we can identify with, with other missionaries and their struggles. I can't identify what it means to be an African man, nor can I identify fully what it means to be a black man in American society. Now, some of my closest friends in the years that I've been here back in the United States, 28 years, are African-American pastors and professors. In the church I pastor right now, it's a very multi or very diverse and multiracial, multicultural church. Many African families from different African nations, including Zimbabwe, and some of my students from St. Augustine's from years ago 
are part of our fellowship here. But I have to say, although we have close friendship and fellowship, it would be an insult to them for me to say, I know what it is to be a black man. I don't. When I step on the campus of St. Augustine's University, I am the minority. There can be a thousand students and maybe a handful of white teachers as part of the faculty. I'm a minority on campus and I'm just fine with that. But when I pull off campus, I'm in the majority. Yeah. In the United States, we have 330 million people. Of those 330 million, 13% are black. 13%. What does that mean? 87% are not black. And they may or may not care much about the needs, history, and concerns of the 13%. That's a reality. So I think we need to sympathize, empathize, but not insult people by saying we can fully identify. But every black mother that I know, and I've spoken with many in recent weeks, are so concerned about their husbands and their black sons in particular. Hmm. Every African-American man that I know, and some I'm very close with, I would say this, 100% have a story about being pulled over by a police officer and treated very gruffly and roughly and sometimes rudely, even though they've done nothing. Now they may have a PhD and they may teach at NC State or Duke University, but in that car, they were just seen as a black man behind the wheel and he could be suspicious driving through this neighborhood or that. I've never had that experience, but in that I hear this consistently, this is more than anecdotal evidence. I wanna respect them and say, I believe you're telling me the truth and I'm so sorry for that. Empathy, sympathy, but I can't say, yeah, they do it to me as well. I've never had that happen. Nobody follows me around a store to see if I'm gonna shoplift just because of the color of my skin. But I've had African-American men and women tell me that's their experience pretty commonly. It's very demeaning. So mm -hmm. I would say to my Caucasian brothers and sisters, just because it's not your experience, don't assume it's not important and don't assume it's not true. Hmm. The Bible says, weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. Try your best to listen through the ears of a man or woman of color who feels that they've been treated with disrespect because they're telling you the truth. That is their experience even though it's not yours. It's hmm. good. Jim, you mentioned, you know, um, that we talked about police and that, that, that experience. And, you know, that's one thing I think that you, you serve many roles and have, and, um, could you just unpack a little bit? Um, you you work with the, the police as a, as a chaplain, and then you also are, are very passionate about um, racial reconciliation. In the world we live today, things seem to be so polarized. You're either on this side or this side, or you're this or yeah. that. Could you just unpack how you walk in both of those areas um, with respect, as you shared, and, and honor um, in that in a world that wants to polarize us? Yes, thank you. Yeah, I've been a chaplain with the Raleigh Police Department now for almost 10 years. In fact, uh, my so we have about a five acre campus here with this church. It's not a real large church, uh, maybe 300 people at best. Um, but next door to us, the chief of police offices. And uh, so I'm very close with uh, the chief of police and the officers there, the deputy chief. 
But it's very interesting, uh, here in North Carolina, our chief of police is black. The sheriff of our county is African-American, and uh, his name is Gerald Baker. He's my former student at St. Augustine's. He was in the adult program. I was his uh, professor several years ago. Uh, the, the chief of police in Durham, in Charlotte, North Carolina, they're all African-American. So he, here's an important truth, and I know that you're an educated gentleman, and no doubt many of our students have been to university. So let me bring you back to philosophy 101. Philosophy 101. <laughs> One of the first things you learned in philosophy, here it is. A faulty premise always leads to a faulty conclusion. Hmm. A faulty premise always leads to a faulty conclusion. So if your premise, the thing you believe to be true at the start, is wrong, it stands to reason your conclusion will also be wrong. So when we say relative to the police department that the greatest danger uh, for the African-American community is the police or law enforcement, and there's a big movement in America today to defund the police department because that's the most dangerous institution to the African-American community, so we need to defund and dismantle, I wanna submit that's a faulty premise. In, I think it was in uh, 2018 or 2019, there were 7,447, I think is the number, homicides within the black community. Nine were a police officer um, shooting or killing, for whatever reason, an unarmed uh, black man. So of 7,447, 0.01% had to do with a police officer. So it's a faulty premise to say the most dangerous place in America for an African-American uh, is near a police officer. That's not true. And I've just named three cities as well as a county where the leadership are African-American and they're not tolerating racism within their ranks. And if they find it, they deal with it. And I do agree there needs to be some challenges and changes in the criminal justice system. And we're seeing many changes as a, as a result of what's going on. Peaceful protest is part of the Constitution and right of the United States. Women did not have the right to vote in America till the 1920s. And it was through the women's suffrage movement and protest that the vote came about. The civil rights movement of the late 60s, or at the late 50s into the 60s, brought about genuine changes in the judicial system of the United States it was a peaceful movement, Dr. Martin Luther King and many clergy in the South. It was a movement of the black church. On Monday nights, the meetings of, uh, of the leaders from a community to plan was always held in a church. And it always uh, involved uh, a certain amount of preaching and singing and prayer before they went. So it was a religious movement in the South. In the North, whole different concept. In the South, Martin Luther King. In the North, Malcolm X. And the philosophy there was by any means necessary. But Dr. King and the peaceful resistance movement really did bear fruit. Now, here we are some decades later, and there's some unfinished business, things that need to uh, be addressed. And I think they are being addressed. One of the great challenges right now is the peaceful protests have been hijacked by a far left organization that we call in America Antifa, 
that comes out of Germany. Antifa speaks of anti-fascism initially, and in America, out in Portland, Oregon, and Seattle, Washington, is a kind of a hotbed of that, but they've spread. We had some real racial uh, or, or violence in our city of Raleigh over the uh, May 30th and 31st. They burned some buildings, destroyed some businesses, and some of them were Black-owned businesses. But really, the trigger for that, and I've talked with the police department, they've told me, Dr. Seymour, you wouldn't believe how many out-of-town license plates honeycombed our city and were leaders in that, uh, that whole protest that night. They're the ones who started many of this pulling down statues, burning buildings, and then by the next day or two, they were gone and the community is left to pick up the pieces. So a faulty premise leads to a faulty conclusion. The truth is, from my theological perspective, racism is not about skin, it's about sin. Hmm. Man's sinful nature, his inclination to dehumanize his fellow human being. We see this inclination in the Bible, Jew versus Gentile, Jew versus Samaritans. The Samaritans, as you theologians know, uh, were a mixed race group that came in as Assyria took into captivity, uh, Israel, the northern part of uh, the nation of Israel, and then colonized there and intermarried with some of the Jews. The Hebrews, who were from the south where Jerusalem was in Judea, over some generations despised this mixed race and mixed religious group called the Samaritans. And that attitude, Jesus addressed um, by going through Samaria, by sleeping in Samaria, and notice this, when he sat with the Samaritan woman, he asked to drink from her water jar. Hmm. Now think of the implications here for somebody who was a Hebrew racist towards a Samaritan, so much so that they would walk several miles out of their way not to walk through the Samaritan territory. And Jesus not only needed to go through Samaria, he said, let me drink from your cup. Wow, he tore down those barriers. And I think the, the relationship and the responsibility of the church is to do two things. And this is the mission of my life. And you can write this on my tombstone. I'm putting you in charge of it, Aaron. <laughs> he tore down walls and built bridges. We mm. need to tear down walls of ignorance walls of prejudice, walls of misunderstanding, and build bridges of understanding. And I think when we acknowledge all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And as my ancestor, William Joseph Seymour of Azusa Street, who was born a slave, he had one eye because he lost an eye to uh, smallpox, I understand. He's the one who said, that the color line is not white and black, it's red. It's mm. the blood of Jesus Christ. That's mm. the color line. And I believe that Uncle William was right. And the other thing that William Joseph Seymour said, he believed that Pentecost was God's answer to racism in America. Now remember, in the early in 1917, you're not that many years, though the Civil War ended in 1865. And there was several years of reconstruction followed by over a hundred years of Jim Crow segregation. 
Uh, so there was still a lot of racial tensions going on when the Azusa Street Revival began in California uh, at the Apostolic Faith Mission with him leading. But that was a very multiracial, multicultural revival. William Joseph Seymour said he believed Pentecost was God's answer to racism in America because he saw it in their, in their chapel. He saw this, whites and blacks praying for each other, being baptized in the Holy Spirit together, loving each other. When he died in 1928, I think it was September the 28th, uh, 28th, 1928, William Joseph Seymour believed he had failed the Lord. And hmm. I'm so sad for that. He died feeling he had failed the Lord. The reason was he lived long enough to see the Pentecostal movement separate along racial lines. Hmm. Do you know my Assembly of God brother? that the Assemblies of God comes out of the Church of God in Christ, Kojic, the yeah. largest black Pentecost, the last, largest Pentecostal body in America uh, is Kojic, not Assemblies of God. We're second. Yeah. Uh, but it all started, uh, we, we were part of that, and then at Hot Springs, Arkansas, largely because of racial reasons. It was so hard for people to worship together racially in the South. Finally, threw up our hands uh, in frustration and founded for that, as well as the reason to come together for world missions in Hot Springs Art, we founded the Assemblies of God. William Joseph Seymour lived to see that, and he thought somehow it was his fault. He had failed the Lord. Let me say this. I think William Joseph Seymour was right. I think Pentecost is God's answer to racism in America. And the only hope for our nation and our world is another great revival that brings us together and crosses these racial prejudices and barriers, which are really man-made, not God-made. I think that's the only hope for our country and a hope for our world. That's a good word. That's a good word. You know, Jim, in your book, um, Black History Through Blue Eyes, which is a very catchy title and uh, very interesting um, for our listeners, um, you talk about, I think something that would resonate with our audience is you talk about uh, the untold story of black missionaries. Um, and you just talked about the, the Zuzu Street revival and, and, and missions being a focus. Could you just unpack a little bit of, of the, that untold story of black missionaries? Um, because it's something we don't hear a lot about. And I think it would be right. fascinating uh, for the listeners. Yes. Uh, thank you. I'm uh, teaching a course uh, on uh, World Missions at St. Augustine University in September. I still teach there in their adult program. I developed years ago a religious studies major and uh, for the adult program. And a lot of uh, pastors who haven't finished any formal theological training have uh, been a part of that over the years. And uh, it's, it's been a wonderful opportunity. I'm teaching a course and one of their assignments, a term paper they're gonna write, and some of your readers might wanna do a little research over uh, a man who is really referred to as America's first missionary to Africa, America's first missionary to Africa, who was not white like me. He was a black man, a former slave by the name of Lot Carey, L-O-T-T, Lot Carey. Uh, hmm. And Lot Carey uh, was the one who uh, felt the Lord uh, called him his his grandmother had prophesied over him uh, as a young man. She was a Christian woman. Uh, he was a slave in, in Virginia, up around Richmond, Virginia, but he bought his way uh, into freedom. 
and he ended up pastoring a fairly large church in Richmond, Virginia. But his grandmother had prophesied over him. Uh, she said, son, you will grow strong. You will lead man, and perhaps it will be you who will travel over the great sea to carry the great secret to my people. Her name was Mahala. She said, Mahala will be dust, but her prayers will live that your feet will find the path after you and others of our race, hundreds of them will come to know Jesus. And sure enough, Lot Carey, uh, although he was really overall doing a pretty good job uh, and had a pretty good life after he bought his way out of slavery, in 1821, he sailed back to Africa. And uh, he was initially, uh, wanted, he ended up in Sierra Leone and then over into Liberia. Liberia was founded to be a place for freed slaves uh, under President Monroe. That's why the capital of Liberia is called Monrovia. Uh, and so he went there and uh, got involved in establishing ministry and God used him to raise up uh, a work for the kingdom of God. Sadly, uh, Lot Carey uh, died in um, Africa in, in a battle with uh, slave traders who came in and tried to capture him again. And in, in a gun battle, he ended up, uh, ended up losing his life. But there were other uh, black missionaries who went off to uh, other countries um, the, in, right around the same time that uh, William Carey in 1792 uh, sailed to India a fellow by the name of David George, uh, who went up to, from America, went up into Nova Scotia, Canada, and then to Sierra Leone, and was involved in, uh, in ministry there. His name is David George. Um, these were people who also just felt that the, the work of God had to be uh, shared around the entire world. A fellow by the name of George Lyle, L-I-E-L-E, uh, went forth to Jamaica, uh, to the missionary society there, um, to preach the gospel among those who were enslaved uh, on the island of Jamaica. So there were indeed black missionaries, who, uh, black men uh, and women, who felt God calling them to go back or to share this gospel to other parts of the world. But here's the reality that you and I, without being offended, have to acknowledge many of our textbooks are written uh, from a more Eurocentric perspective. Many of the authors of our textbooks were white, and we are inclined to see the world through our own eyes. One of the chapters of my book, Black History Through Blue Eyes, asked the question, how did Jesus turn white? And uh, <laughs> if, if, you, if you study the, the Gospels, you find that in the family tree of Jesus, there were those of African descent, uh, in Matthew's um, uh, gospel, you read about his, his genealogy. Um, and, and it was very common for the intermarriage. If you go back into the Old Testament, some of the patriarchs had at least one African wife. I mean, polygamy, not that that was God's ideal, but it was very real. And if you go back into the scriptures, Abraham, had at least one African wife. Moses married the Ethiopian woman. Joseph, the prime minister of Egypt, married a woman of, uh, of Egypt, Northeast Africa. And David, one of his wives, was a very particularly beautiful woman of African descent. Her name was Bathsheba. 
the, the preface Bath means daughter of Sheba was in North Africa. So uh, I do challenge people who say that interracial marriage should not happen uh, because it's against the Bible. My question is, which Bible are you reading? Because it was pretty common in the Bible. If you as an individual or your family is uncomfortable with that, by all means, then that you shouldn't do that. I'm not, I'm not saying you have to, but don't invoke the word of God to underline your prejudice or discomfort. Don't, don't say that's the word of God, because that's not what the Bible says at all. Bible says we're fearfully and wonderfully made. And uh, this whole idea in the scriptures and even of the family tree of Jesus, one of the reasons why we have the perception of a white Jesus, I've been in homes where you see Jesus picture on the wall and he's blonde haired and blue eyed. Now, let me tell you something. That's Jesus of Norway. That's not Jesus of Nazareth. That's Jesus of Norway, <laughs> not Jesus of Nazareth. Because uh, the Bible tells us uh, that... Um, Jesus was a man with the blood of many nations flowing through his veins. And from the day of Pentecost, we read on the day of Pentecost, read the scriptures carefully, the church was multiracial from the first day. There were people there from several African nations. It references Egypt and Libya. It tells us there was people there from Asia and from the Middle East and Rome. So from the birthday of the church, the church of Jesus Christ has been multicultural, multiracial. And we need to see it because God planned it that way from the very beginning. Jesus turned white primarily, if you go into, uh, into history, um, some of the great Renaissance artists, Michelangelo, Da Vinci, uh, the, the Last Supper, for instance, Da Vinci paints the picture of the Last Supper. Who are his models? Italians, he's in Italy. And so you look at Jesus and all of these disciples, they're all white guys. And so you assume through this great paintings of, uh, of that era that that must be true. Um, it, particularly people who didn't have much education or were not really trained to think critically. If that's what you saw in the ancient King James Bibles, they had prints of this in the cover of the Bible. And here's Jesus and the disciples, and there he is, but they're all they all look suspiciously white. You can draw a faulty conclusion based on a faulty premise. Therefore, Jesus and the disciples are white, which is why some have accused wrongly that Christianity is, quote, a white man's religion. Hmm. You could make a much better argument to say Christianity is a black man's religion, but because Paul was such an effective missionary in Europe, that the gospel spread across Europe and then across the Atlantic to these United States. It was because of his great missionary work. I can't remember if Paul was actually an Assembly of God missionary, might have been, <laughs> but he was so effective in cross-cultural ministry to Gentiles that the gospel spread across Europe and to these United States. So it's been well embraced, but the scriptures tell us from the book of Acts on, that this was a gospel for the whole world. And the gospel first went into Africa, not through the work of a missionary uh, from Connecticut or West Virginia, but an Ethiopian eunuch who was the finance minister of Candace, who was the queen of Ethiopia. He was a black man who brought the gospel into Africa. 
and the Ethiopia, I've had students from Ethiopia. There's a great love for God and a great respect for the word of God. And I ask my students from Ethiopia often, if I visit, will you take me and see the Ark of the Covenant? Please show mm. me where you've placed it so far. I've had no uh, invitations for that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Well, Jim, it's been a fascinating um, time with you today. And uh, I really appreciate your wisdom, your insight, and your experience, and your your ability um, to take a a uh, complicated subject matter and to give us points that we can put into action in our life and uh, give us a new understanding and recognize that we can empathize, we can sympathize, but as, as white, a white male, I can't identify and to respect and, um, and to lead with respect in that, in that area. And so would you go ahead and would you pray for our audience today that God will use this conversation to speak to them wherever they're at um, for his glory um, in our lives. Father, in the name of Jesus, we come to you and we admit if ever there was a time we needed the wisdom of God, it's right now. We say a, we see a global pandemic that has called a caused a health crisis all over our world. We also see, Lord, a virus of hatred and fear and anger that is spreading at least across these United States. I pray, Lord, that we would embrace the truth that when the church is in a time of crisis, it should be the church's finest hour. May we step up with wisdom and courage and speak the truth, but speak it in love. I thank you, Lord, today that uh, my children have embraced the vision that God has um, people of all backgrounds and races. And I thank you for Aaron and Heather as they have spent their lives as missionaries in Africa. For my daughter, Jessica, who lives in Zimbabwe and uh, adopted three children. Uh, Two of them, their birth parents were black and one is biracial. and, And the challenges that they face in this world, but within our family, they have total equality. We pray we'll equip them well to be salt and light in this world. And and I just pray, Lord, for for my son Aaron and his boys, that you might have a plan for their lives, that we might all become part of the solution, not contributing to the problem. I pray, Lord, for those who will hear this podcast in the 70 nations that tune in. Oh, God, give us humility to acknowledge the fact that we have had blind spots when it comes to other people, other races, that sometimes in our arrogance or ignorance, we've thought that our way must be the best way. If everybody could just see things like us, the world would be fine. Maybe that's just absolutely a faulty premise. May we see life through the eyes of God. May we look at people as heaven does, created in the image of the living God. Oh, Father, help us today to walk in light, to be dispensers of truth, And let the peace of God that passes understanding flow through our hearts to a troubled world. In the name of Jesus, I 